0: To Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, we've been going through the Beatitudes. The Blessed is how these phrases or these sayings that Jesus is bringing us to, Now they start. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, and on and on. And I've told you, and you know by now, I think that this is happiness that he's describing, the true happiness happiness that God gives to his people it's blessedness it's true deep joy it's down into the core of who you are a contentment and we're all longing for it we all wish we had it we all are seeking it we can't stop seeking it we saw it this week we went for it this week and the question we should probably ask ourselves is where were we going for happiness and did it work right We maybe pursued it in a relationship, we maybe pursued it in sin, hopefully not this week, maybe we were looking for a quick fix, Uh, maybe we were looking to something to bring us happiness and it didn't, and we got angry that it didn't. How's your heart this morning in terms of the joy that God offers us in Christ? We all want to be happy, we even have our little rituals that we do and we pronounce happiness to one another. Just yesterday, I was at my in-law's house and we began the ritual where we lit the mini torches, we put them into the dessert, and as they burned, we all gathered around, and we started that chant, happy birthday to you, happy birthday to you. The ritual, the incantation, we we began to say it. Why? Because we were wishing a happy birthday to my mother-in-law, ingrained into the fabric of our society is a desire to be happy we can't turn it off and here's the beauty of the gospel is that God is concerned about your happiness and not your fleeting happiness not the happiness you get standing around a birthday cake singing a song but a real deep happiness comes down from heaven Given to you by the Spirit that enables you to go into this world and face whatever trials and temptations and difficulties and tragedies and enables you to have joy in these things. We looked at last week. Look at that first beatitude. Blessed are the what? What's that first one? The poor in spirit. That's not talking about someone who's materially poor, that has nothing. That's talking about someone who, when they evaluate themselves, they come to the conclusion that they're bankrupt. That word is "ptas." That Greek word means utter destitution, complete poverty. I have nothing to offer. I don't have any coins in my pocket to give or to, to, to lend. I am objectively poor. That's what it means "poor in spirit, but it means that's how I view myself. That when I come before God, I got nothing. I have nothing to offer. I have no goodness in my hands that I could bring. I'm empty. Spiritual poverty is this idea that I am completely dependent on the generosity of someone else to sustain my life. Not me. It's a self-evaluation. All salvation, friends, begins with this. All salvation begins with you coming to this conclusion about yourself that you say about yourself, I don't have anything to offer. I am completely and totally and utterly empty. And of course, we know that the sermon keeps going. Although this is the starting line of all true spirituality, it's the starting line of our relationship with God. He starts by saying it's all about realizing who you are, that you're empty before God. You have nothing. This is the beginning, but it doesn't end there. He begins to build like, a, like someone building a house. This is the foundation. All of the rest of the sermon comes out of people who understand that they're poor in spirit. Once you get that, everything else begins to follow. But he follows quickly with this second one, follow me here in verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. You could think of it as this way. To be poor in spirit is to have the evaluation of yourself in your mind that you don't have anything to offer God. That's the beginning of your self-evaluation. It's in your mind. But then that mind, it doesn't stay there. This idea doesn't stay there. It goes to your heart. And so if Understanding that you're poor in spirit is the response of the mind to God's truth. The response of your emotions is to, what does Jesus say here, secondly, is to mourn. You're a whole person, right? You have a mind, you have a heart with emotions, you have a mind that thinks, you have a heart that feels. When you come to the mind understanding that you are empty, as Jesus said, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, when you come to that conclusion about yourself, the only natural response is the emotional, almost uh, spontaneous outflow of understanding that is this idea that I am going to mourn. I mourn. Now, how many of you think that you actually like to be sad every once in a while? I mean, who, who likes to be sad? Who likes to go pursue sadness? And if you wake up this morning at that, I'm going to have a sad day today, I'm really happy about it. Like, no one wants to be sad. That's paradoxical. And if you think what Jesus is saying, he says, blessed are those who mourn, which means happy are the sad. It's backwards. It's a little weird. Happy are the sad. The joyful are the sorrowful. Nobody likes this. And so Jesus is doing something that you've got to pause. You've got to go, okay, what do you mean by this? This is a strange saying, Jesus. All our lives we are running as fast as we can away from things that make us sad. We're never pursuing it. We're afraid to death of being sad and depressed. We will do anything to escape difficulties in the world. And even when suffering or tragedy is happening in the world, we like to shield ourselves from it or we like to distract ourselves from it because we don't know how to process it. Many people even will not deal with their own guilt or their own sin and shame. Rather, they will distract themselves or drown it out. I think the world has plenty of mechanisms to deal with the pain in the world. You can drown it out. You've probably known the people who drown it out with pleasures. Maybe that was you before you met Christ. You drowned out the pain of the world with the pleasures of the world. And so you went to the bars and you maybe did the drugs, the sex, drugs, and rock and roll were your thing. You pursued those things. Why? Because the pain of the world was too much. You didn't want to take that in. And so you went to these other things, these other uh, outlets, You're trying to drown out the pain with pleasure. We people still do this today. We don't want to think too much about the problems in our hearts, the problems in our lives, the problems in the world. And so what we end up doing is we drown it out. We'll go sit in front of a TV screen for hours as we binge watch something. We'll go on social media and we'll just scroll through mindlessly, intaking anything that gets our minds off whatever is difficult in our world. We try to set up our worlds and organize it so that it's a nonstop carnival. We're amusing ourselves incessantly, waiting for the next buzz to distract us from whatever pain we're feeling. And so we're trying to drown it out. Many people do that. Some people deny it. There are entire religions organized around this principle to deny the reality of suffering. You've heard of these probably. It's just positive thinking. Just think higher, better thoughts, Push away negative thoughts. Deny that they exist. Get yourself in your happy place. There are religions. I think Buddha and others try to create this idea that all of suffering is just an illusion. just in your mind. It's not real. So some people are drowning it out with their pleasures and some people are trying to deny sins or grief or pain in their world by uh, saying it's an illusion. Others... This is something we got to be careful not to allow our hearts to go this direction. Even as believers, some of us can detach from the world. And so we don't want to feel any pain. We don't want to mourn. We don't want to be sad. And so we detach. Charles Dickens wrote that famous story you'll read around Christmas time. You know, I'm talking about a Christmas carol. And there's that famous grumpy character. What do you call him? Ebenezer Scrooge, right? He had this description Charles Dickens was a brilliant describer of people he he described scrooge like this listen to this it's the perfect picture of what it means to be detached from the world he was hard and sharp as flint from which no steel had ever struck out generous fire secret and self-contained and solitary as an oyster that's detachment Secret, self-contained, solitary, cut himself off from the world, cold-hearted. I don't give my love to anyone because if I do, they might hurt me. So I'm keeping it here. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to be sad. So I'm taking all that I own and all that I have and I'm holding it tightly. I'm going to be detached from the rest of the world. And some people are living this way. Some people are drowning it out with their passions, and some people are denying the things that hurt even exist. Some people are detaching themselves from the world, and Jesus comes onto the scene, and he doesn't say, here's how you deal with pain, here's how you deal with grief, here's how you deal with sorrow. He doesn't say any of those things. He comes, he says, blessed are actually, let me turn your world upside down for a second, blessed are those who mourn. What he's saying is that Christians don't have to be those who are trying to create an alternate reality that doesn't actually exist. They're not those who are trying to drown it out with the pleasures of the world. They're not trying to deny suffering. They're not trying to detach themselves. They're all in. They're ultimate realists. And we as believers are able to look at the world in all its fallenness and brokenness and we're able to understand it without being driven crazy but only if we understand that it's okay to mourn. Jesus says, blessed are those who mourn. True Christians understand we as a church ought to grow in our understanding how to process the, pla- the pain that plagues our planet. And I think Jesus here gives us a mechanism for doing this and it is through the mechanism of mourning. The mechanism of mourning sadness grief he says if you are experiencing these things grief agony sorrow mourning there is blessing in that and I want to give us I want to consider three right reasons to mourn so you note takers these are the things we're going to talk about these reasons for mourning for grief for sadness that are right and that we should mourn in these ways because Jesus is blessing the morning. Now, if Jesus is saying, blessed are those who mourn, now I want to know, what kind of mourning is he speaking about? There's mourning in the Bible that's not good mourning. Good mourning is a title I could have used for my sermon this morning. Hey, good morning. Hey, we're not, we're not, there's some, some mourning that is not good that we ought to avoid. So what is the kind of mourning? What should we as believers think about when we're considering that it's actually blessed to mourn? Here's, here's the first right reason to mourn. It is right for Christians to mourn for the fallenness of the world. It's right for you to mourn for the tragedies around the world. Romans 8:22 puts it this way: "For we know that the whole creation has been groaning. It's almost as if creation itself is mourning groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Ever since sin entered the world, there has been a curse. And ever since the curse has plagued all humanity, creation has been groaning like like someone in labor ready for something new. You can't go long in this world, can you? Without feeling the pain of something around you? A loved one being diagnosed with something that might take their life? the news of a hurricane barreling through and taking homes away from people our world is falling and if you look at the storyline of our redemptive history we're right in the middle of a tragedy we're not the beginning in Eden. In Eden, there was a perfect paradise and there was no sin. We're not at the end of the story where everything's resolved and everything's made right and just. We're not, we're not there either. That's coming. But we're right in the middle of a tragedy. And what that means is that you can't go a day without experiencing the pain of living in a broken world. Natural disasters all, the, all, all year long cancer, AIDS, diseases scourge the planet. There is no place you can go in this universe to escape the effects of this fallen world. There's a passage in Romans chapter 12 in verse 15 that Paul is writing to a group of believers and he's he's telling them how to have fellowship with one another. This is very instructive for us and one of the directions he says is so pertinent to Christians living in a fallen world. Listen to this. He says rejoice with those who rejoice And weep with those who weep. You know enough people, you'll be crying a lot, right? You know enough people, people will be going through pain and tragedy and suffering in their lives. And if you're going to obey this command that you weep with those who weep, we're going to have to be those who mourn. Jesus is declaring, when he says, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the people who have eyes open to what the world is really like. They're not trying to push it away. They're not trying to detach themselves from it. They're not trying to drown it out. They are seeing it for what it really is. And they're weeping with people. They're sensitive to the fall. This is true, guys. Isn't this true that one of the fights for our lives, one of the things we got to fight for, it doesn't happen naturally. Naturally, we become calloused. Naturally, we kind of become numb. We stop feeling things because it's too much effort and emotion to, to invest into every tragedy that happens. One of the battles we must fight is the battle to remain tender enough to weep with someone who's weeping to remain tender enough to see where there's tragedy and be able to mourn? And so first, I think Jesus is getting at this idea that believers who are blessed, those who are experiencing the blessing of God are those who are able to evaluate the world that it's not what it should be, that we're in the middle of a tragedy and they're able to weep, they're able to mourn. And so, first, right reason to mourn. It's right to mourn for the fallenness of the world. Here's the second reason we should mourn. Mourn for the sins of loved ones. Mourn for the sins of loved ones. We see someone whom we love fall into sin. That should be a cause for mourning. Go to Math or sorry, go to First Corinthians chapter five. Let me demonstrate this. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, Paul is dealing with a difficult situation. It's a wonder to me that any church would ever want to call themselves Corinth Baptist Church. That church exists, but the church in Corinth here was a big mess. This was a mess of a church with all kinds of factions and there was pride and there wasn't uh, unity. You see all throughout this book, they're trying to create a foundation of spiritual unity and one of the big problems you find right in chapter five, it says in verse one, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not even tolerated among pagans for a man has his father's wife what Paul's saying is there's some issues in your church. Here, I've actually heard this. I got a report from someone that there's sexual immorality among you. And he says this kind, it's a specific kind. This isn't even tolerated in the pagan world. It's a kind of incest where a man has his father's wife, probably his mother-in-law there. And he's saying this is an awful sin in the church. And you guys are tolerating this? It's not tolerant. It's not good to love um, or no, it is good to love this person, but love doesn't express itself in just being tolerant, never addressing the sin. He says this in verse two, watch this. He says, and you are arrogant, ought you not rather to mourn? There's an ought there. That's a must. That's, that's something we ought to do. He's saying here that this church should have seen this sin. In this man stuck in this sin and no repentance, no desire to change, and the church should have seen it and they should have mourned over it. They ought to have mourned. They should have seen the beloved brother in Christ going down a path that was going to be self destructive, it was going to be harmful to the witness of the church. And instead of seeing it and weeping and going after that brother and mourning and calling him to repentance, they just said, Oh, it's okay, you go do your thing. As he walked down a path that would destroy him and it would destroy the church's witness no one did a thing but they should have what does paul say they should have mourned listen church there's a time for mourning and in that time is is when one of us is in unrepentant sin whether it's me or you or the guy sitting next to you if any of us goes into sin and we are unwilling to turn from it we are stubborn and we want to go that direction our heart should not immediately jump to i'm offended at you it should immediately jump to i'm going to weep for you i'm sad that you would choose this for your life there's this book i read recently called a, a call to spiritual reformation it's a Book by a guy named D.A. Carson, one of the best books on prayer I ever read. There's a passage in it that about brings me to tears when I read it. And it's a passage that talks about uh, Don Carson, D.A. Carson, a renowned scholar, has spoken to thousands, traveled the world speaking at conferences, written many books, many commentaries. And he's telling about a story when he was a little kid. And when he was a little kid, he grew up with a father who was a pastor up in Canada. And that church that he pastored is Little Baptist Church. It was a church that held in the low uh, uh, double digits, probably 20, 30 people, maybe about the size of number of people here. And his dad would preach on Sundays. And often after church on Sundays, he would come after with his congregation. uh, Or after he left his congregation, he'd come back to his family. And he'd tell his children, let's all gather together. And they would all gather together. And there was a piano. And the the father would would play some songs on the piano. And all his family would sing along. And the kids would all sing along. And it was kind of their after-Sunday service worship. Mom would be making dinner in the other room. And they'd just be singing. Well, one Sunday afternoon after church, little Don, he's just a little boy, Donald Carson, comes home and goes to the room with the piano. He's waiting for his father to come and start playing the songs like he was used to as part of the routine. And he comes into the room and no one's there. Dad's nowhere to be found. So he goes and starts looking around. Where's dad? We're, we're supposed to sing our songs right now. Where's dad? And so he goes looking and, and he sees a door. It's the door to his father's study. A little bit open. Now normally he would know that if the door was closed it meant that his father was in there studying and and often he would go by and there would be the door closed and he could hear his father praying. He could never hear what he was saying but sometimes he could hear uh, the murmuring of of his father praying and this time it was open a little bit. And so being a curious little boy he kind of pokes his head and he pushes the door open and he kind of peeks in. And this time he could hear what his father was praying for. And there on his knees, he peeks in, he sees his father down on his knees, not opened any books, not studying in any way, but he's on his knees, and tears are streaming down his face, and he's weeping. And his little Don sees his father, and he hears the words, and he realizes that he's praying for the members of his congregation. And he's praying for the people in his tiny church and he's weeping over them specifically because there were some people who were coming to his church that were not repenting and giving their lives to Christ. They were just kind of coming and just kind of listening and then they were leaving and here's D.A. Carson's dad in his office weeping, praying, calling upon the Lord, save these people. He's interceding for them. And young Carson could never forget that image that someone who loves another will weep for the sins of the people he loves. Will cry out to God in prayer. This is, I think, normal for Christians, for us, as we grow in love for one another. We begin to feel what one another feel. And when there's pain, when there's grief, and when there's sin, we experience it along with you. And when there's unrepentant sin, it's almost like we feel like repenting for you, that we mourn for you. George Whitfield, famous preacher, could preach to thousands. He had a booming voice. And he often got made fun of because people would mock him because often he would be preaching and there would be tears streaming down his face. And one guy kind of flippantly walks up to George Whitfield after this sermon where he was clearly weeping as he preached. And the man walks up to him and says, why are you crying all the time when you preach? Why do you do this? It's a distraction. And George Whitfield looks back at him in the eye and he says, you blame me for weeping. But how can I help it when you will not weep for yourselves? Though your immortal souls are on the verge of destruction. You don't feel anything and I'm feeling it for you. Why don't you weep? Oh, that there would be weeping of that sort in our congregation. That we would look upon the lostness of man and it would not be received with numbness or callousness. That we would be so tender that we would weep. That we would mourn. That there wouldn't be numbness. And we have to ask ourselves that question. Has the modern Christian become so sophisticated that we're unable to weep? Paul was a weeper. Paul would cry during his sermons in Acts chapter 20 verse 18 he says this you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia He had ministry to do in Asia. And from day one, the moment he set foot, he's serving the churches. He's ministering to people. He's helping them out. He's preaching the gospel. He's hoping upon hope that the Lord would bring life to the people in Asia as he's serving. And he goes on to say, I've been there this whole time serving the Lord with all humility and with tears. Which is to say, with being poor in spirit and being mourning, I mean, Paul is living out the Beatitudes here. How could we watch someone we love blindly guzzle down the poison of sin and not mourn, not weep? You follow a Savior who, we, who wept, <laughs> Jesus wept, He wasn't too masculine to weep. As he crested the hill coming into Jerusalem, he saw a city filled with people that he loved, that he had come for, that he had taught, that he had sacrificed for, that he was going to go to the cross for, and he saw them reject him. He saw them deny him, push him away, and even accuse him. And in Luke chapter 18, he sees the city and he begins to weep and he cries out, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they're hidden from your eyes. He goes, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, I would have gathered you. I would have saved you. I would have redeemed you. I would have forgiven you. But you would not have me. It's Christ-like to mourn. It's Christ-like to weep. And listen, the honest question and the haunting question I have to ask myself as I'm studying these things is this question, why don't I weep like my Savior? Where are the tears like Paul? Why can't I be so in touch with the sins of others that they grieve me? Why don't I mourn? Isn't that a good question to ask ourselves? And could it be that over time we've become numb, We're calloused? You know, there's two reasons to mourn: first, for the fallenness of the world, and then secondly, for the sins of the ones we love. Are two crucial reasons to mourn, but I don't think they're the main thing that Jesus is getting at. I don't think they're the main thing. Jesus says, "Blessed are those who mourn." And I think the the heart of it is this, that we are, here's the third reason, we are to mourn over our own sin. That is a good reason, a biblical reason, to mourn over our own sin. We should see sin in our hearts, and when we do, there should be mourning over our sin. I hope that it's not only that we see the broken world and not only that we see the sins of others, but that we have enough realistic perspective on ourselves that we have the capacity to own our sin and to weep and to mourn and to groan even over our own sin. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was called the doctor. It's his nickname in ministry because he actually started his ministry as a medical doctor. He got saved as he was going through his studies. He left the medical field and went to the ministry. He was called to preach. One of the things he had mastered as a doctor in the field of medicine was the ability to diagnose people's physical ailments. He could diagnose problems. And when he became a preacher, he used that same skill, except instead of diagnosing the sicknesses and the diseases of people he began to diagnose the culture and he could understand that he was a brilliant he was brilliant at pinpointing what is the fundamental problem with our society today and this is one of the observations he made a brilliant and illuminating observation listen to this he writes this i cannot help but feeling that the final explanation of the state of the church today is a defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin. You hear what he's saying? He's saying, here's, here's where we get to the fundamental explanation for why the church is weak. And then he wrote this many, many years ago. I'm not sure the church has gotten stronger in the years since then. I think it's maybe gotten weaker. But he's saying, here's, a, here's my explanation for the state of the church today. It's we have defective sense of sin and a defective doctrine of sin and then he goes on coupled with that of course is a failure to understand the true nature of Christian joy there's not a real deep conviction of sin as once was the case and on the other hand there's a superficial conception of joy and happiness which is very different indeed from that which we find in the New Testament what an observation he's saying there's there's a superficial joy out there in the world And the reason, and not only out in the world, but in the church, and the reason there's a superficial joy is because there's an inadequate view of sin. That is exactly what Jesus teaches here in this second beatitude. That true comfort, the land of comfort, can only be accessed through the bridge of mourning. And that if you bypass the bridge of mourning, you will not come to the land of true, deep, real, biblical comfort. It all starts with poor in spirit, really owning who we are, really understanding what we've done, really understanding where we've fallen in our sin. It it comes with a mourning for that, a desire to change that, a sense so deep that I understand it's my sin that's the problem. But then... In understanding that, finally, I'm actually able to deal with this problem by understanding the grace of God and the comfort of God. If you, if you want to love Jesus more, I trust you do. I mean, that's why you're here, right? You came to church this morning because you want to love Jesus more. Am I right? Amen. Right. Okay, we, we want to love Christ more. And that's part of the motivation every day of the Christian life is to love Him. Did you know, maybe you never thought of it this way, that your love for Jesus will grow the more you understand the depth of your sin. You understand that? You'll have an increasing love for Jesus Christ when you have a lower view of yourself. This is proven in Luke chapter 7. Why, why don't you, you turn here with me? Go to Luke chapter 7. And here we get the parable. Not a Sorry, not a parable. This is a what actually happened with Jesus is there's a sinner, a woman who was called a sinner. If you start in verse 36, you get the story of this sinner. One of the Pharisees asked him, that's Jesus, to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. Here's Jesus eating with a Pharisee. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner. That's her identity. That's how the community identified her. She was a sinner. And when she learned that he, Jesus, was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, she brought an alabaster flask of ointment. She hears Jesus is there. She wants to go see him. And so she gets this ointment and she goes into the house. This would have taken a bunch of boldness. This would have taken courage. And here she goes, verse 38. And standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears, and wiped them with her hair, or sorry, with the hair of her head, and kissed his feet, and anointed them with the ointment. Now the Pharisee, who had invited him, saw this. He's going, What's this woman doing here? Don't you know who she is, Jesus? He said to himself, If this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she's a sinner. The Pharisees thinking Jesus would never let anyone like that in here, doing that to him, if he knew who she really was. In verse 40, Jesus answered and said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered and said, Say it, teacher. He begins to tell a the story. A certain money lender had two debtors. One owed 500 denarii and the other 50. You got one over here, he's got 500. You got one over here, only owes 50. They both can't pay. Verse 42, when they both couldn't pay, he canceled the debt of both. So now they both owe nothing. They both owe zero. One was 500, one was 50. Jesus is telling the story. Now the guy comes in and says, all right, neither of you owe me anything. You're both back to zero. And Jesus answers the question, or asks the question. Now which of them will love him more? Now we're starting to talk about the category of love and more love. Which one will actually have more love? And Simon answers. He answers rightly. He says, this, the one, I suppose, for whom the... He canceled the larger debt. Simon gets its common sense. If you've owed 500 and that 500 goes away and suddenly you're nothing, you're gonna be more excited than if you only owed 50. And so he goes, of course, the one who had the bigger debt. She is, this person owed so much, couldn't pay it, and now the debt is gone. Jesus, of course, is you've judged rightly, verse 44. Then turning toward the woman, he said to Simon, you see this woman? I entered your house you gave me no water for my feet she's swept my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair you gave me no kiss but from the time I came in she's not ceased to kiss my feet you do not anoint my head with oil but she has anointed my feet with ointment therefore listen to this I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven here's the connection guys for she loved much but he who is forgiven little loves little do you want to love much do you want to have a love for Jesus that's growing and expanding well how do you do it is you have a right view of yourself you have a right view of how much you've been forgiven the lower you see yourself the more you understand what you actually deserve is not grace but condemnation the lower you get the more you see your sins for what they were rebellion against a holy God, the more we see that, the higher will we rise like this woman with love because we will say, my debt was the greatest and it's gone. We won't say, my debt wasn't that much, it's gone. It wasn't that big a deal anyway though. I could have taken care of it myself. If you want superficial comfort, ignore the sin in your heart don't talk about it deflect if you ever feel guilty or shameful or something like that just push away amuse yourself or distract yourself but if you want to grow in love for jesus when the spirit convicts us and brings to light our sin the right response is is to look that sin in the face and see it what it is and even mourn over it. And in that mourning, as we fall to our knees in humble repentance, we look up to the cross. And there we know that all the sins, as deep as they are, as bad as they were, as much as they offended a holy God, that God can forgive them through Jesus Christ. It's always those who mourn who experience salvation. Always. Always. This amazing passage in Ezekiel chapter 9 where he's given a vision, this prophet Ezekiel. He's supposed to write it down. The Lord is speaking to this angel and the Lord says to an angel, I want you to go to Jerusalem. So this angel has to go to Jerusalem. This is in Ezekiel chapter 9 verses 4 to 6 if you want to turn there. Jerusalem was a city at this point in the history of Israel that was so far gone into their evil, so wicked that they had rebelled against God in numerous ways. And again and again, God had sent prophets and they had rejected the prophets. They had not repented. And so here is God beginning to mete out the judgment against the sin of the people in Jerusalem. And so God says to this angel, Here's what I want you to do go to Jerusalem. Verse 4, the Lord said to him, Pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over the abominations that are committed in it. Go, here's what you're going to do, angel. Go through Jerusalem. Everyone who's sighing, everyone who's groaning, everyone who looks around at the sins of Jerusalem and weeps over them, those are the people I want to make sure you mark them. Note who they are because there's all kinds of sin and it doesn't seem like anyone seems to care but if anyone does care if anyone's mourning over that mark them you say well what's going to happen next verse 5 and to the others he said in my hearing pass through the city after him and strike God's meeting out judgment go through and strike your eye shall not spare and you shall show no pity he's going to go through he's going to kill people in Jerusalem. But then in verse 6, at the end of verse 6, beginning of verse 6, kill, kill old men outright, kill young men, maidens, little children, women. God's wrath is coming. But then he says, But touch no one on whom is the mark. Wow. All these people in Jerusalem, if anyone's sighing, if anyone's mourning, if anyone's groaning over their sin, Send the angel and wipe out everyone, but don't wipe out those who weep. Don't wipe out those who mourn. Don't wipe out those who are repenting. Emotional counterpart of repentance is mourning. It's weeping. It's coming to the understanding that it was my sin that brought Jesus to the cross in part. I am in part responsible for what happened to Jesus. And that grief causes us to mourn and wail. But it's also in that mourning that we realize that it wasn't only my sin that put Jesus on the cross, it was his love. And that out of love, he went to the cross. Here's the good news, church, that we're all guilty. We all ought to mourn for our sin. We've all failed in innumerable ways. But the message of the gospel is that God, in his amazing love, sent Jesus Christ to save us, to live a perfect life for us, to die on the cross for us to take all our sin and guilt and shame upon himself and the wrath of God falls on him so it doesn't have to fall on us. And he pays it in full and he dies completely. It wasn't a fake death. And he rises from the dead and he says to all, forgiveness of sins are yours. Innocence can be given to you. I can justify you. I will cleanse you perfectly and that the mourning of repentance leads to the freedom of forgiveness. And if you haven't repented of your sins, if you haven't been to the point where you mourn over it, the good news is that right now, Jesus is alive and can offer you that, more, that salvation and that forgiveness. And you can get that comfort. Blessed are those who mourn. Why? They'll be comforted. Here's the reason why we find comfort is because Jesus is fixing everything. You say, the whole world's a mess. It's all falling apart. Yes, it is. And one day Jesus comes and he brings a new creation home. And there will be no more cancer. And there will be no more tragedy. And there will be no more tsunamis. There will be no more difficulty in the world. The new heaven, the new Jerusalem comes down. And even in Romans chapter 8, verse 21, it says this, the creation itself will be set free from the bondage to corruption. Set free. A new creation where everything is as it should be. You say, well, what about all my friends who have fallen into sin? Jesus is coming. He's going to fix that as well. You did mourn over the destructive sin of your loved one. One day there'll be perfect justice, perfect peace. Those who persist in wickedness will not prosper. They will not get the upper hand of Jesus. All sins will be paid for. Perfect peace will reign every area in every realm Jesus will make sure that this place is a place that never again will experience the taint of sin you say well my own sin I weep over that but if you're trusting Jesus that morning even right now can turn into rejoicing and that morning, even right now, can turn into a deep confidence that you're blessed by God himself and that you will inherit the new Jerusalem, the new heaven, and the new earth. Jesus is fixing everything. And right now, it says that he's a great high priest who understands your pain, understands your mourning, understands your weakness, and he's able to sympathize. And he says, come to me with all your problems, all your pain. Everything you've mourned over, everything you've grieved over, draw near to the throne of grace. Jesus says that right now. Let me ask you here's an application for us to take home. Have you mourned this week? And for what? Is there grief in your heart? Jesus, right now, understands as a priest over us. He's been tempted every way, yet he never failed he now offers himself to us. He says, come. Bring your pain. Bring your problems. Bring your brokenness. Bring your sin. Draw near to the throne of grace. He gives grace to those who come. If you've been stuck in sin or sadness or suffering, try this. Mourn for that. But mourn while looking at the cross and mourn thinking about this promise. Revelation 21.4, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Blessed are those who mourn. We mourn over the world because it's not fixed yet. We mourn over our friends because they're broken as much as we are. We mourn over our own sin because we know how much has offended a holy God. But we mourn with hope. We mourn with anticipation. And we mourn looking to a Savior who gives us comfort in our deepest need. Let's mourn because we know that blessed are those who mourn. And let's mourn with hope and even mourn with joy. Let's be like Paul who said he's sorrowful but always rejoicing. All right, let's let's pray. So Lord, it is a defiance of the wisdom of the world to embrace mourning. When the whole world is trying to distract itself from anything that would cause it to mourn, here we are listening to you and you're telling us, no, blessed are those who mourn. And so, Lord, I pray that if there are mourners here, that they would find the comfort that you speak of, that they would experience the blessedness that they speak of, that they wouldn't try to run away from the mourning, they wouldn't try to distract themselves or deny it or detach themselves. I pray that we would be able to mourn in hope mourn in anticipation that we would be sorrowful and always rejoicing. That we would be the ultimate realists so that we would then be made useful for your service. We pray these things so that you would be glorified and so that we would be edified. And we pray it all in Jesus' name.